Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 106 of The Writership Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about scenes and characters. I'm Leslie Watts, here with special guest editor Anne Hawley. You, to learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the Writership Podcast is brought to you by Jim Kukrell and Author Marketing Club. Jim has just launched a new business for nonfiction authors called Business Around a Book. So if you're a nonfiction author, visit www.businessaroundabook.com and let Jim help you turn your nonfiction book into a profitable, life-changing business. That's businessaroundabook.com. Hey, Anne, welcome. Thank you. So Clark is away for a couple of weeks, and my friend and fellow editor, Anne, has graciously agreed to jump in and help out. And um, just by way of introduction a little bit, Anne is uh, the author of the forthcoming novel, Restraint. Think Pride and Prejudice meets Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, I know. That's fantastic, isn't it? She's the founding member of the Super Hardcore Editing Group. So I think you're going to enjoy her insights today uh, on the submission. And I'm looking forward to it. So thanks so much, Anne. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, did you bring a quote? I know it's this your first time, but uh, do you have a quote for us? I have a quote from the first five pages by Noah Lukeman, and here it is. Story is as much, if not more, about characters as about plot. They are your plot. Their needs, wishes, developments. Their introduction and establishment should be foremost on your mind. Even if you begin with heavy plot action, Character introduction should be integral to this action, and the action of the plot should not be just for its own sake, but should serve to further growth of the participating characters. Yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like, yep, full stop. Um, that, yeah, that's, that <laughs> says it all right there. So there's a lot of talk um, between... Uh, different authors about particularly I think genre you know what we call genre fiction and authors who write more literary fiction about what's more important and is you know is the is this a character driven novel is it a plot driven novel and the and I think sometimes that we get we think it's a dichotomy like that they're you know that they're it's one or the other but but truly it's it's both the i mean to me that we have the we need you know we need engaging characters and they need to be engaged in their journeys and sometimes that's an internal journey and other times it's an external journey but we have all of that kind of um together and um and in the mix. So both are really important, no matter what story we're trying to tell. Totally agree. Uh, 
So today, to kind of explore that that realm of plot and character, we have The Bad Shepherd, which is a published crime fiction slash noir story by Dale M. Nelson. The word count is 98,000. We're going to be looking at the beginning of that. And it has some colorful language and drug use. So if you want to avoid that, uh, this might not be the story for you. Uh, And just to give you a little bit of background about this story, the author says, this book is as much about the music and culture of the 1980s as it is the crimes described in the story. The music scene on the Sunset Strip is like a character in the story that's always in the background which is kind of fun, uh, especially for a story like this. So, okay, I'm going to, for your your listening pleasure, I'm going to read The Bad Shepherd Opening by Dale M. Nelson. Beau Fox stared through a telephoto lens at his informant, who sat in a sidewalk cafe across Hollywood Boulevard. The man in the camera's viewfinder reclined with a forced laziness while he white-knuckled the beer bottle in his hand. Good, Fox thought. You're smart to be scared, Rick. Rick had one chance to convince his supplier that he was moving up in the world and that he needed a couple of keys, a couple of keys, like right now. The alternative was felony possession with intent, and this guy This was a guy who wouldn't make it past signing his name at prisoner intake. Rick Ellis was the entertainment manager at the Starwood Lounge, one of the more notorious of the Sunset Strip music clubs. The club's notoriety was well-earned, and it was a lightning rod for the Hollywood Vice Boys. Rick's job was to sign popular bands that kept the lounge packed, Rick wasn't on anyone's A-list, and none of the A&R guys that mattered even knew his name. Bands wanted one thing, exposure, and that meant crowds. Savvy bands knew that that meant the right kind of exposure, and that meant going to the kind of club that record company scouts frequented, which wasn't the Starwood Gazaris had its famous dancers, and no one really asked questions about what went on backstage. The rainbow was, well, the rainbow. So without the contacts, the reputation, or the womanly assets of his competitors, Rick used the resources at his disposal to entice people to play at his club, namely Coke. Rick first popped up on the squad's radar several months ago when Bo heard rumors that there was some nearly uncut cocaine floating around. They eventually traced it back to Rick. Bo learned through a guitarist whose band played the Starwood that Rick had trays of the shit flying around. Bo didn't want to bust him at the club and risk blowing his identity on the strip so he'd worked to get himself invited to an after-party at Rick's. They busted him that night with just under half a kilo. Rick's only salvation was that he bought in bulk, and he had no loyalty to anyone. He lasted an hour in interrogation. 
He rolled on his supplier in exchange for dropping the felony possession charge. Not to mention the coked-out 17-year-old blonde that went into cardiac arrest on his living room floor. She lived, but barely. Bo made it clear that a jury would know that she was so high that she nearly stroked out before they got her to the ER, where doctors administered an elephant's dose of diazepam to save her life. And Rick's hands had been all over her when she was too inco- incoherent to do anything about it. Rick dealt. Fox snapped several more test shots of his informant decked out in a white linen jacket over a blue t-shirt and jeans with Ray-Ban wayfarers like he was Roy fucking Orbison. He'd taken the ponytail out and his wavy blonde hair just about hit his shoulders. Satisfied with his establishment shots and position, Fox stepped back from the high waist, uh, sorry, the waist-high stucco wall on the second deck of a three-story garage. It was the color of spoiled cream and smelled the same. His partner, Mitchell Gaffney, closed the door of their 78 Plymouth Fury. How come TV cops get sports cars and we always have to drive this shit heap? Bo kept his expression flat and fought the impulse to roll his eyes. You're physically standing in Hollywood and you need to ask? Mitch flipped him one and took a few steps toward the stairs at the corner of their level. Gaffney was all height and sinew, a standout wide receiver and track star at UCLA, and still one of the fastest men in the LAPD. I'm going to get in position for radio check. Right on. See you on the other side. Radio check. This is Unit 1. Bo said after Mitch had a few minutes to get into position. Mitch, Unit 2 in position. This is Unit 3, Freddie Queen's voice said after a short burst of static. Four here, read you guys loud and clear, Detective Dom Senna said. They both sat in unmarked cars parked at either side, or either end of the block. These were undercover units signed out of the impound lot rather than the standard unmarked prowl car that drug dealers could pick out in a hot second. Through his viewfinder, Bo watched Rick stand and walk into the cafe. He lowered the camera as though the image it showed him was somehow phony. What the fuck are you doing? You stupid son of a bitch, he spoke into the radio. All units, all units, this is Unit 1. Subject has left the area. Unit 1, say again? I repeat, subject has left the table and entered the cafe. He is out of sight. Bo weighed his options. He could pull one of the units off the end of the street and have it circle around to the back of the cafe, cutting off Rick's escape route. But if it turned out this was just a nervous bladder married to extremely bad judgment, they would leave one of his contacts' egress points uncovered. Bo couldn't take Mitch out of position. He needed his his partner in place for backup and possible intercept. What on earth is this asshole thinking? Bo's mind flipped through the possibilities. 
Unit 3, proceed up Orange and reconnoiter. Check out the alley behind the cafe. I want to make sure he's not rabbiting. Roger. Bo watched the blue firebird make a right turn and disappear down the alley. Long minutes passed. Bo thought his watch was lying. Rick appeared from the cafe's interior, wiped his nose once, and wove through the sidewalk tables to his own. Bo brought the camera up and sighted Rick immediately. As soon as he was seated, a body detached itself from the stream of people trickling down the sidewalk. He was tall, lean, and athletic. He moved with a grace that was almost animal. He wore a gray t-shirt, blue jeans, aviators, and a blue Dodgers cap pulled practically to the top of the glasses. He wore the shirt loose, but in the camera's amplification, Bo could easily see the tightly corded muscle beneath. This was Deacon, just the way Rick described him. Bo replaced the camera with the radio momentarily. All units, all units, subject is in place. Bo snapped a photo of Deacon sitting down at the table and then marked the time in the surveillance log. Watching a conversation unfold when you know one half of the dialogue in advance is surreal, particularly when you couldn't see the individual whose lines you knew. From this angle, Bo had only Rick's profile so that he could get a full shot of the subject, but he could tell Rick was describing the party he was allegedly planning by the animated hand gestures and the bullshit smile. This guy was good with big sunglasses and a Dodgers cap, but he looked at the table a lot, leaving no good angle on his face. Rick said something that pissed him off because he was pointing across the table at the promoter now, and Rick was spreading his arms wide in the universal, it's not me, gesture. Deacon shook his head, and his mouth cracked in a mirthless smile. He pushed back from the table and stood. A cold pit formed in Bo's gut. He wasn't going for it. Rick stood then, too, and went to shake Deacon's hand, but the other guy looked at the gesture as if Rick's hand were contaminated. He tried to save the, mo the move by jerking his hand into a thumbs-up. Flake. Rick ran both hands through his hair and vamped like he was tying a ponytail, the symbol that Deacon had agreed to make the sale. Deacon turned and walked away in the direction he'd come. This is Unit 1. Unit 4, subject is moving in your direction. Pick up the tail when he passes. Copy that one. Okay. Okay. That's our, <laughs> that's our submission. Nicely read. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I stumbled a little on the curse words, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I just went for it. Uh, so... What, one of the things I really love about this is, you know, the author has a lovely, strong voice, and it really engenders that noir feel. Um, he's got some excellent concrete details that, uh, I, that for me, I mean, I, having grown up uh, or part of the time during the 80s, 
I, you know, I remember Firebirds and, and so there's a, there's a, it's kind of a cool feel to it. What did you think of the, of the scene? Well, I agree that he sets the tone of the time and the place just beautifully. And this is my, hearing you read it was the first time I've heard it read aloud and it reads aloud very well. It has a strong voice. And I I honestly, I was surprised going back to realize that it isn't in the first person. Because when I read it the first time and then thought about it, it was like, oh yeah, this is in the first person. The point of view is so strong. Mm -hmm. And the the specificity of the time and place is, it, I mean, there's a problem with writing historically like this in that if you are under, I don't know, I want to say 35 or so, you're not going to, even A&R, you, I think someone called out here that A&R um, might not be a term that's known to the modern younger reader because it's arts, artists and repertory and it was a record company term and record companies are kind of no longer with us. But he, but I'm willing to go over those things because I'm so clear that I'm in a historical setting here. Mm-hmm. And I will, you know, I'll catch up. I'm, I'm, as a reader, I'm willing to kind of stumble and stagger after the narrative a little bit in a historical setting because I understand, it's okay, I don't have to stop and look everything up. I get that it's scene setting. Uh-huh. And this worked, it worked really well for me here. Yeah, yeah, I think that the, um, I made some comments just, I can't, it, you know, in the manuscript about little details and, and lines. And there was this one line that just, that I thought was really well done. And it's kind of subtle, but when he's describing the, oh, I'm going to find it here. When he's describing his partner and he says, Gaffney was all height and sinew, a standout wide receiver and track star at UCLA, and still one of the fastest men in the LAPD. It's a really subtle line, but I like how it captures him, the character, and it and it does show a little bit of, of who, like, Bo is just the facts kind of guy, and he's not you know, he, there's no emotion in it whatsoever. He's just, he's still, this is who he is. And he's still one of the fastest men in the LAPD. And that gives us a clue. Like we talked about earlier that neither of them are rookies or new at this. They've been around the block Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's not clear exactly what age of, of cops we're talking about, but they are not kids. Yeah. It's very clear. It's that tough, kind of hard-boiled feeling that we—they've been around the block. They're cynical, yeah. yeah. Then they're, you know, they're vice cops on surveillance. They're not. This, this is not rookie stuff. So yeah, that comes through. And you're right. That's he's still fast. Still it's fast. Like, this tells you a lot about both characters, about the point of view character Bo, who's talking about his partner and about his partner. It's it's a nice. There's a lot of that in here, and as. As you were reading through it, I was impressed again with, I mean, we'll get to some critical things here about whether or not this works as a scene, but I was impressed again with my sense of being swept up into the setting, the time, the place, the the culture, the drugs. Um, Particularly, we have um, where he's describing Rick, why Rick is 
is a, you know, an informant. Mm-hmm. And you get this whole, the, here's all the clubs, and this one has women, and this one has, what was the other thing? Um, uh, it gets the A&R, or, oh. Yeah, the, a, the, the rainbow, A&R guys. The rainbow. Right, the rainbow, the rainbow was, rainbow. well, the rainbow. And I'm willing to accept that. I don't need to know all about it. It's like, this is, yeah. this is setting. But then without the reputation, Rick, Rick only has coke to entice his character. I mean, it's very vivid. And, and it's like, this is interesting. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested in this, this Rick guy. Um, and he, he's this weaselly sort of smarmy with his long hair and his ponytail. And I mean, he's just, he's very vivid. Yeah. He's very vividly someone that you just have no respect for. Um, he's he's kind of a loser. He turns on his suppliers. He's he's a great character. Right. No loyalty to anyone. Mm-hmm. And he buys in bulk. <laughs> and he buys in bulk. Um, one thing that I didn't understand in in this this long section of background and build up mm-hmm. uh, before the actual little takedown happens um, is when they're talking about how come you know we have to drive these crap cars and these drug dealers drive fancy cars um, no TV cops excuse me get sports cars and we always have to drive this shit heap mm-hmm. and Bo, Bo says you're physically standing in Hollywood and you need to ask I, I worked at that for quite a while both when I read it and when you were reading it and I still like okay, we're in Hollywood, we're talking about TV, it didn't quite land for me. Uh-huh. That was just a, a small, I, we're just picking at lines here, but in the midst of all this wonderful scene setting and characterization, there was this one thing that kind of like, okay, that was that was more of a stretch. It's like there was a missing piece in that little joke there for me. Right, right. Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a subtext or mm-hmm. um, that, yeah. That's that's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that. So, what do what do you think about this as a scene and how it works? Last week we talked a little bit about the you know the components of a scene: the inciting incident, the progressive complications, the crisis question, where the the POV character faces a, a decision, has to make a decision, and then. Uh, making the decision, which is the climax, and then the resolution, what unfolds from that. So as a scene, how do you think this works? Well, I have mixed feelings about how it works as a scene. The inciting incident is only implied. I mean, it's basically Bo finds Rick in the viewfinder of his camera. It's not much of an inciting incident. We we come in while it's in progress. I, I don't really know the inciting incident seems to be in all of the 700 words of background that's given about why Rick is why and how Rick is in this position yeah yeah that's the way I see it too that the that the inciting incident is is happening off stage uh, and then it's explained in 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 the pluperfect you know this is what had happened right Right, that because because Rick had to Rick had to do a deal because there was no way he's going to make it in prison, and so part of his deal is that he has to he has to do the, try to 
you know, essentially yes, that set up this uh, this big dealer. Yeah. So so yeah, I agree with you that that's the that's the inciting incident for the scene, and that it happens off stage rather than mm-hmm. in front of us. And then the complication seems to be, uh oh, Rick got up. He seems to be breaking the rules here. He's getting up and leaving. Uh oh, he's rabbiting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a faux complication because all it is is just he's he's apparently gone to the restroom to snort some coke to soothe his nerves. Right. So right. it's it, I mean it, it's it acts as a complication but it's kind of a bit of an artificial complication. It didn't I mean it kept me going. It's like, "Oh, okay, what's happening? Oh no." You know, and the police all talk to each other and over their radios and and it it works, but it's not very organic. Right. And, you know, for me, the problem with that in part is that I don't know what the stakes are for Bo other than ordinary stakes when a cop is trying to, you know, is doing an undercover operation. Obviously, they want to be successful and, you know, get the bad guys. Um, But but beyond that, like, why is it that he when he has to make that decision, why does he have that? feeling in the or well no this actually comes later that he has the feeling in the pit of his stomach when he thinks this is not gonna it's not gonna happen and yeah so, when the dealer looks angry and like he's gonna walk off like this this didn't work yeah so so I get the impression that it's really important at that point but at this point when when Rick goes into the you know walks into the cafe I don't know what's at stake really if it doesn't go down properly so that's you know that was kind of a problem for me about yeah and and the stakes are laid out kind of in that long section of exposition between the inciting incident and the and the complication um that this you know we want to catch this big uncut coke dealer um it's kind of I think there's in this type of story where there's cops and drug busts and things, even in modern settings, the stakes are implied all along that the cop wants to stop the drugs from being on the street or whatever. I mean, I can work with that in this opening. It's just within this scene. Yeah. The stakes are, is this deal going to go or not? Mm -hmm. This is not the deal, but the, the, the sting kind of whatever you call it, you know, is this in this this spineless informant going to do his job? I, I can work with that as the stakes of the scene. And in that sense, when he gets up and appears to be leaving, you know, rabbiting, um, he he um, th- that that complicates it. That it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I don't know the main character, the Bo- the POV character, Bo is. Is not he's behind the camera. He's not really fully present in the scene yet. And again, I'm okay with that. I'm getting to know him through his voice. Um, so the stakes in this scene are all about Rick and the deal. Yeah. And and so the crisis is: Will he? You know, is he rabbited, or will he be able to make the deal or not? And you know, here here the crisis is: Here comes Deacon, the big dealer. Will the deal be made? Will Rick? rabbit again yeah i mean to me the the crisis is or you know his question is what it does he um does he ta- does he take one of the guys off the end of the street or does he tell his partner 
to, you know, to go check it out. And he's, you know, I mean, the decision is made right away. I, th- he... I, I will, I will argue with you though, that that is a, that is an unimportant question in this scene. Okay. When he talks about, oh no, should we put, will there be a way for him to get out that other point of egress if we take this? That's completely unimportant to the scene. I would have deleted that. The question in the scene is, will the deal be made? Okay, okay. I mean, I feel feel strongly that the point of view character is, is not at play in this scene. He is strictly an observer that's set up explicitly. He's at a distance. He's looking through the camera. He wants the deal to be made because he's a cop. But the crisis and the, the crisis question is, will Rick perform? Okay, okay, so then... That, I will argue strongly for that. Okay. <laughs> so you the, get a second complication where the... And it's kind of after the crisis, because here comes the dealer, will the deal be made? Um, you know, he the, the, the deacon separates himself from the trickle of pedestrians on the sidewalk and goes and sits at the table... And is this going to work? Is this, you know, the sort of dial you're turning out there? Like, ooh, is this okay? Here he comes. Is this going to work? This is the crisis. And then there's a little bit of another complication, which I think is a problem with the scene, um, because then there's another complication after the crisis, which is Rick appears to piss the dealer off. He's, excuse me, pardon my language. Um, <laughs> He, he does something. Sailed. <laughs> we don't know what, but he's done something that looks like, uh-oh, maybe this won't work. And then we get the climax. Rick gives the signal. Yeah, and the guy The, the answer to the complication, uh, the crisis question, which was, will Rick make the deal? The answer is yes. He gives the signal. Yes, he's made the deal. Then the resolution is the dealer moves off, the police go into action, and Rick has played his role. Yeah, yeah. So if you take out the 700 words of exposition between the opening sentence and when the dealer, or when Rick, you know, sits down at the table and starts to wait for the dealer and begins his complications, you have a very, you have a perfectly good working scene of only 700 words. It's because it's about 1,400 words, I think, isn't it? I didn't count, but I think yeah, that's... Yeah, I, th- I think roughly, yeah. But more than half of it, or half or a little bit more than half of it, is an interruption between the opening line and the first complication. Yeah. And that's what I think the problem with the scene is. So, and and for me, the... Um, I just, you know, kind of shifting out of that for a moment to talk about character is that that like I hear you saying that you you were okay like you felt you got enough of Bo through his voice that that you felt you know um, you could relate to him and and that and I I felt like I didn't have enough of him to um, to really relate and to um, you know, sort of develop the relationship because of the because we get like you say we get the one the one sentence where Bo is you know he's looking through the the lens uh-huh. and and he can you know and then we essentially we zoom in on Rick and we get 
the exposition and we have in that within the exposition we have you know we have Bo heard Bo learned he didn't you know like uh, some of his motives and that um but not but I don't I don't feel like I'm getting to know him beyond he's a you know he's a vice cop he's a cardboard cutout of a vice cop at this point I agree and so for me, I would rather have like a little more, a little more something, which is vague, and I hate that kind of advice. Um, but, but to, you know, to understand a little bit about what the personal stakes are for him, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be like I wouldn't want it to be on the nose, and I wouldn't want the author to mess the scene up with, you know. Bo felt very strongly about this because blah, 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 right. you know, um, <laughs> yeah. but, but some indication of why, you know, like what's, what's personally at stake, because as you say, like all vice cops, unless they're crooked are trying to get drugs off the street. And so right. we get that. And that's something we can understand. And it's something that, especially in the context of this genre, um, this, you know, we're in this drug and drug and entertainment scene in in mm-hmm. LA like that that makes sense but to make to make it personal and to reveal just a little bit of that feels to me like that would make it more powerful and i could really relate to Bo as a character um to have him have something beyond what the normal cop wants yeah and the only little tiny hint of that that we get is in that interchange between Bo and Mitch about the cars. There's a tiny little bit of sort of personality there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that could have been... I, I, you, you get a little bit of interplay. The Mitch is more of a malcontent than Bo is, maybe, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly what comes through in this long exposition part is this sort of cynical view that depends heavily on the reader kind of being there with you in the scene. Like, I'm old enough to know that when he says, um, let's see, there's a place where he mentions what Rick is wearing. And he talks about his hair. His t-shirt. It's a t-shirt and a white, was it a white linen yeah, the white, white linen, linen jacket. jacket. I mean, mm-hmm. he's describing something that's very vividly. It's Miami Vice. It's this whole yeah. 80s <laughs> sunshine thing. I get it because I was a grown-up when that stuff was happening. I wore white linen jackets and blue T-shirts, too, and no socks. And um, <laughs> You know, I get that. But he's depend- the author is depending heavily on the reader either recognizing that world and with it the whole point of view of this cop that whose eyes we're looking through whose camera we're looking through mm-hmm. or depending on it a younger reader who doesn't actually remember those things just accepting this whole scene and with it the attitudes and the 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 fact that we want you know the cop i the cop if i'm putting myself in his point of view Bo wants to succeed with this arrest, and that's all there is. 
Now, for me, as we talked about a little earlier, I'm happy to turn the page and find out more. Mm -hmm. There's enough here for me to be interested in Bo as a righteous cop or, um, you know, a good guy and a cynic and he's he's got attitude. I mean, I'm willing to turn the page to find out more later about him. Yeah, and but I agree. In this seven hundred words of exposition, he could have probably given me a little something. I don't know. I don't know if it would spoil it or not to put something a little bit more personal in there about his what his desires, his his inner needs. Right now, his inner need is is to succeed as a cop, and his external need is you know to make this bust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's there's character there. It's just not very deep yet. I think. Um, yeah, two things that I wanted to say about that. One is that, right, the the ideal reader for this might be somebody who who was, you know, um, old enough to kind of have a real sense of what the 80s were about. So that's, true, kind of, that's a possibility. Uh, yeah. Or like you say, um, you know, how everything old is new again uh, at different times. We like during the eighties. I remember we would uh, have a sixties day in high school. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, so obviously these interest in decades gone by definitely arise right. from time to time. So we do get that. Uh, so uh, I think I have. I think that's all. I mean, in the yeah, Firebird. I'm just. Right, right. Bird. I'm totally I can I can picture that. Um, but, you know, one thing I did want to mention uh, and relating to character is we have this really tight third person limited point of view. And and like you said, it's so it's so tight that you at first thought it was, you know, like it didn't. I, re- I remembered it as first person. Yeah, yeah, you remembered it as first person. So so. Then what I was thinking about, well, well, would Bo, while he's standing there looking through the viewfinder, he wouldn't necessarily be thinking about all of these things, like the, you know, the, the exposition as we get it. And so I think there would be, I mean, certainly he has a trigger in the present moment to be thinking about the way that all of this um, came to be but we don't have but it comes across almost as an I mean it's strongly in his voice but the information comes across as almost an omniscient kind of thing or as if as if Bo were explaining it to someone who didn't know the context and right. so Bo wouldn't necessarily be like mulling that over and and, and thinking right. about that in the moment and that all of like those facts could come in a different way with him thinking about it a little less, you know, a little more like what would, you know, what in that moment would he be thinking about that would help the reader understand the context for that. And also give a little bit, I think if it were, um, if the author were to, you know, kind of tighten that up in that way, that it would be more, um, that we would see more of who Bo is enough that we would understand what his personal stakes are in this, in this transaction. 
So really, you're saying you, what I what I think I hear you saying is that there's this disconnect in these. There's like two narrative voices happening here. One is Bo, very strictly internal point of view. What the hell is this guy doing? I see him through my viewfinder, um, etc. And then there's the 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 Bo, who's the first person who should be the first person noir detective explaining to you the reader in a first person voice let me tell you about all, okay, who's he talking to there's there's a distinct discontinuity between between two voices here right right and it's a cheat I, i'm not saying it doesn't work i mean i agree that logically would he be mulling this over in his mind no he's just focused on Focusing his camera literally on the the guy and right. what he's doing. So no, logically it doesn't work. But narratively, I don't think it's a complete failure. Oh no, I don't think I don't think that it's a complete failure. I, I'm just saying that like that it could be improved, like it could be tightened and and mm-hmm. and more it could powerful. Be shorter. Yeah, yeah. As a as a scene, if if that if the exposition were kind of um were trimmed and really put in Bo's voice and what Bo is thinking about and and noticing and and that through those things through that um because the author has gotten so many of these details nailed really Uh well that through tightening that up I think that would reveal more of Bo's personal stakes and and interests and and because I think it you know like it generally speaking it works and it's not you know it's not anything where I would say oh this is terrible or no not at all all. it's just that if you wanted to like if you wanted to improve the scene and tighten it and make it more powerful that's where I would that's where I would work I in looking at the synopsis, which I think you post, right? It goes in the show notes. Yeah, I'll share that because we got a, a nice, uh, a nice summary from the author about what happens to these characters, right? To, well, to Bo and Mitch in particular after after this. There's a hint in this scene that there's going to be some kind of conflict or tension between Bo and Mitch, his partner. Yeah, it's very lightly hinted at with, you know, they they see things a little differently, but it's so light that I mean you're really digging to see it. But I, I'll accept that. But <laughs> when I read this scene without looking at the synopsis first, which I did first, mm-hmm. it's a story about a cop, who a, a vice cop who's in the drug bust business, mm-hmm. and. He's involved in this nasty world of L.A. music scene and drugs. And he wants to arrest drug dealers. And presumably get drugs off the street to stop beautiful 17-year-old blondes from being, you know, raped and practically murdered with cocaine. That's what's in this scene. That's what the book is about, judging by this scene. Right. When I look at the synopsis, that's not what the book is about. Yeah, that it's a lot more complex, which, you know, as we talked about before, is part of the genre is that there's a complex web and it involves corruption 
and um and there's a lot of there's a lot beneath the surface Uh um and as i look at it as i look at the the synopsis to me the like the like the juiciest part of the story is you know starts about two-thirds of the way through the synopsis and that and so and of course you know, full disclosure, obviously, that I haven't read the entire book that I'm going based on just what I have here in front of me with the synopsis and the the scene, that to me, there's a lot that leads up to the real conflict, or the real action, which is that, is that Fox wants to right a wrong that happens, and it happens during the story, but I'm wondering if what I'm wondering is if that might be the place to start. And I'm trying, I'm, I'm dancing around this cause I'm like wary of um, spoiling the whole story. Right. Right. Uh, and, and not having read the whole story, it's hard to, it's hard to know. How you can only, really you unfolds. can only go from this synopsis. Yeah. And there's a backgrounding problem here, which is, Let's say the story, let's say this was not the opening scene. This scene doesn't even happen. And we start with, um, what was the specific in the synopsis? The wrongful death suit. The wrongful death suit launches the the real story. So that puts us in the position here of this is the ordinary life opening of this this guy's adventure, right? Mm -hmm. He's just this vice cop. He just does surveillance and busts drug dealers and we get... That's fine. That's an ordinary life. Maybe a couple of scenes like this could start to build the, you know, what's going to incite the, the larger, more complex story here. Mm-hmm. But it's just background upon background. If we do start, let's say we jump right in with we're in the middle of a courtroom and there's a long, wrongful death suit, I and mean, that poses problems too. Because no matter where you pick to start this, you've got to give some background. Yeah, yeah, and I... I think all of that, because, yeah, so, I mean, the, I'll, I'll give a little, and I'll try not to, I'll try not to give away the, I mean, we don't have the, you know, the, the, we don't know how it all turns out based on the synopsis, but we know what happens during a lot of it, and, and there's a, there's a bust that goes bad, and someone gets killed, and, and Gaffney or Mitch is the one, you know, he, he kills the guy and Fox thinks that there's something, something not right about it. Like he, you know, he's, and the fallout from the whole thing ends up costing Fox his job. He has to resign essentially in disgrace and, and it's, you know, it's a bad deal. But when the, when the wrongful death suit comes up then it gives him an opportunity to kind of get in and right the wrongs that happened and so to me that it could very well be that a lot of that is you know is the setup for the real story which is what how fox goes about 
writing this wrong. Now, mm-hmm. again, I haven't read the whole thing, and I'm just going based on this, and we have, you know, the limits of our format um, make it, you know, I wouldn't want to say, like, this is it, you know, but but that's the sense that I get from looking at this. Right. In which case, this as this scene that we're looking at as an opening scene, it, still ser- it can still serve the purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying, oh, definitely throw this scene away, and oh, plus yeah. this is yeah. already a published book, so you can't, but um, ha- the, the question that it raises then, looking at the overall synopsis, is how far, my sense, I guess it's my sense of pacing. Given this scene and given the synopsis, how long is it going to take me to get to the real story? Based on what I'm reading here, we've got a certain pace set. There's a, you know, there's a bust, and it has something. I'm I'm patient. Noir is complex, and I'm willing. You know, I'm I'm the target audience. Let's say I'm willing to, you know, turn a few pages to get to this complexity. But this scene doesn't give me enough to get a feeling for. I mean, I've got a book in my hand. It's ninety-five thousand words. So, what's that? About three, three hundred twenty-five pages, something like that. Good long book. Uh-huh. Um, and I've read this scene, and and I'm just thinking in terms of the, you know, how many pages are in my left hand versus how many are still in my right hand. Mm-hmm. What's it going to take to get? Where's the real story here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you that the complexity hinted at or or detailed in this synopsis. I feel like this this first scene is is almost thrown away as a very small step. It needs to be shorter, a shorter step, fewer words to get me into the real complexity, the real story. It's a pacing issue. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Characterization, um. which I know that that we're we're interested in today. I'm content with the characterization. I know you, you don't feel like you are. Um, I'm, I, he's, he's a, he's, uh, Bo Fox is a bit of a stereotype. I'm willing to let him become, you know, I'm willing to let him surprise me later. He's a stereotypical noir cop guy. Cynical, hard-bitten, you know, impatient etc. I'm okay with that. You you feel like you want more. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, but, you know, again, this is, um, it would be, I th- it would be helpful to see this scene in the context of all the other scenes and to, you know, to know that for sure. So I guess what I would say is that the advice is to consider that Mm-hmm. and what you know how that you know consider it and does it feel okay do you feel like you you know really covered it enough and if not like how would you you know like the the thing that I think is like if you get in there a little tighter with the with the giving you know giving the backstory um for why they're there at the cafe and, and doing that then from his, you know, very, through his very narrowly tailored 
filter, then that would mm -hmm. make it stronger. Well, and the, the depth and detail of the backstory given is good and it's fine and I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. excessive drug use in the music clubs of LA in the 80s is not really what the story is about. It's about drug dealers and a whole culture, but we get, we get um, pacifying the streets of South Central LA in advance of the 1984 Olympic Games, um, gangland massacres, um, it, it, what I guess I would like to say to Dale is, you got me, I'm, I'm ready to turn the page. I, I, this scene worked well enough for me that I'm like, okay, I'll turn the page and find out what's next. But given what you've also told me here in this synopsis, which I as the actual innocent reader am not going to get, is I'm going to turn the page and I'm going to start to be maybe disappointed, oh, this is not what I thought this story was about. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's a, a possibility. Um. Yeah. Well, but I'll hand it to him because I do want to turn the page. I mean, I, I, yeah. I found some fault with the structure of the scene, but basically I'm interested. It's vivid. These characters are, are very clear that we may not know them emotionally, but they're clear people on the page. Uh, their names ring out. I are memorable. I can keep track of them. I, there's action. And yeah, I mean, I'll turn the page and keep reading. Right. And, and, uh, yeah, and, and similarly, I I had to sit with this one for a long time because there was it was like there was something in the back of my mind that wasn't working for me, but I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint it. It took a long time, and I think that's because so much of it is working and working well that that right. one little thing was just kind of more of a whisper than a than a shout. <laughs> and, and the whisper to you turns out to be that you just don't feel connected with the, the point of view character. Yeah, yeah, that we don't, because I don't, I know Rick so much better than I know Bo. Right, <laughs> that's true, that's true. But what I know about Bo because of that is that he is distant from the action. He's literally looking at it through the lens of a camera. He's not in any danger in this scene. Uh-huh not in any physical, personal danger. The risk to him is that this bust won't work, right. you know, that he'll lose an opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I don't know anything about his heart. I don't know what's going on with him. I have no sense of who he is. Is he married? Is there, is he hungover? Is he anything? <laughs> nothing. Right. He's just cynical. He's just cynical, kind of cardboard cutout, cynical noir cop guy. Yeah. But yeah. my argument is that's okay, I'll still turn the page and try to find out more. I trust that there's more because the trope of this genre is there's going to be more. Right, right. Okay, great. Great discussion. Thank you. No, thank you. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have an editorial mission related to our topic today, and it's called Capture Your Character's Essence in a Sentence. So uh, I suggest that you write a one-sentence description of each character that includes their name, who they are in the story, so that could be their position or status, and something of what makes them unique and hints at what they want or need. So you could start with this framework that's the name is a status position, 
who does, thinks, believes something. So you, I want you to try to limit it to 25 words for each sentence. And obviously, great, you know, great to start broad and then start whittling it down so that you get down to the, the 25 words or less. And so I have two examples that are not noir in any way. I have <laughs> Elizabeth Bennett is a marriageable middle-class woman with no fortune who thinks wealthy people are prideful and will marry only for love. <gasps> and second example, Charlotte Lucas is a middle-class spinster who prefers to marry a ridiculous man she doesn't respect than be to being a burden on her family. So nice. Then what do you do what, with this sentence what you, once you've got it? So I think you use this sentence as your jumping off point for introducing the character. So you want to make sure that, that you reveal at least, you know, level one of this essence of your character through action, dialogue, description, reactions when you introduce them. And then, then you know, as you're revising and you're going back through your scenes with the character, remind yourself of this sentence and make sure that that's, that they are acting either consistently with their essence or that they're in the process of change and that you've, their the events of the story have justified the change in their essence. So, uh, and if you didn't get all that down, you can go to writership.com slash episodes to sign up and get the editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. And uh, and then check out the show notes uh, as well because we'll have the we'll have the synopsis there that you can check out and of course our uh, written critique and, and all of the other information for this episode. And great stuff. Yeah. So and remember, the Writership Podcast is brought to you by Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club. Jim has just launched a new business for nonfiction authors called Business Around a Book. So if you're a nonfiction author, visit www.businessaroundabook.com and let Jim help you turn your nonfiction book into a profitable, life changing business. That's businessaroundabook.com. Okay, and Jim and Author Marketing Club cover the hosting, hosting that is, and technical support, but our Patreon crew supports our time in preparing for the show. You can support us there and earn some extra rewards by visiting patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. This, is, this helps other people find the podcast so we can help more people. Uh, and if you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com slash submissions. Finally, be sure to check out episodes of the book editor show, which Clark hosts with Peter Turley. That's it for episode 106. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.